He is a founding partner of the Centennial Group International and chairman of Centennial Asia Advisors. He was the president of the Asian Institute of Management, as well as chairman and CEO of the Development Bank of the Philippines and Land Bank. From 1992 to 1998, he served as Secretary of Finance under the late Philippine President Fidel V. Ramos. He was named Finance Minister of the Year by several organizations in 1995, 1996, and 1997, and is currently the chairman of the Philippine Veterans Bank. With us in Thought Leaders, Roberto Bobby F. De Ocampo, OBE. Good to see you, Bobby. Thank you good so much for you. joining us. Thank you for inviting me to your new program, uh, Kathy. It's good to see you again. Yes, thank you. And congratulations to uh, 10 years at the Philippine Veterans Bank. You've been chairing yeah, uh, so the, uh, the bank for for a decade, and that's my I can really hardly fast. believe 10 years have gone by, but it's been exciting. I was, uh, I, I was uh, put into that post, actually, or should I say persuaded into that post by the then Central Bank Governor Tetanko and uh, Finance Minister at that time, Secretary Porisima, to uh, so, to put the bank back in shape, because that bank unfortunately had good intentions, but was, wasn't run by people that knew much banking, and towards the end it wasn't even run with good governance, so it almost collapsed. And you know you don't want a bank that has a constituency like the heroes of the republic to just suddenly disappear in a mess so they asked me if i could fix it after a while i said yes but please back me up because i'm going to be draconian uh, draconian meant i was probably going to change the whole board start changing the governance mechanisms change the senior officers and then move on from there uh, so you the 10 years the, have been exciting. The, the, the heroes and, and the excitement. And, and this really is significant for you personally because your uncle and your dad right. are World War II veterans, right. Filipino World War mm -hmm. II veterans. So That's why you're, you're paying homage to them and serving mm -hmm. uh, the Philippine Veterans Bank. That's right. In the 10 years that you've served, I, I just look back. When you accepted, or at least were persuaded to take on the position, you said that you wanted to transform it into an active major player, mm -hmm. not only in the local banking scene, but globally. Yes. How far have you gone in, in those 10 years in achieving that the goal? The first was to repair, because it was in bad shape, close to closing. So the repair part of it is more or less accomplished. There are still bits and pieces there. But you see, I thought it is very important to get that bank in shape, because it is the only banking institution that is both a bank and a monument to the heroes of the Republic. So it would be embarrassing if it, it, it fell on its face. Now we're trying to build equity because uh, it had a very low equity compared to what is, uh, what is uh, the regulatory requirement. So now we're in the process of building equity and we were able to do that thanks to an amendment of the Veterans Bank Charter, which was passed during the last administration, that allowed us to do two things, expand the equity base to 10 billion, and open the bank to other, other veterans aside from the World War II. So now we're in the process of building up to that 10 billion equity. But the overall concept really, in order to place it strategically, 
as a significant uh, player in our economy and perhaps even outside, in my mind is to model it somewhat after the military bank of Thailand. In other words, its basic constituency would be the veterans of all wars, plus the military, plus the armed forces, plus the national police, plus all the uniformed services of the country. Could that work? I mean, we're, we're it, a democratic work in Thailand. system, and, and Thailand has a different government no, no. structure. Land Bank, for example, has a, has a defined constituency, which is farmers. DBP has a defined constituency of infrastructure long-term. It's, so it's not extraordinary to have a defined constituency, but that doesn't mean that's only one you service. It's just that you give it preference. And by giving it preference, therefore, you uh, link it to its purpose, which was a financial entity to be able to provide supplementary assistance from the government's own assistance to veterans, the military, etc., which it cannot do if it is in bad shape. And pensions, pensions really important reform. Um, Pension reform has really been the the sticky point yes, when it comes to we, got, we have nothing to do with to, that. to economic managers right. actually wanting some reform mm -hmm. for pensions for uniform personnel. Right. How are you getting on that that reform program going given the fiscal challenges that the government's facing? Well, we have expanded our pension loan program. When I first got into Veterans Bank, I asked them how much do you have in pension loan portfolio? And they proudly told me 100 million. And I said, you got to be kidding. You got such a big basic constituency and you're only doing 100 million. So from that point on, we've reached 3 billion. What it does is it's like a salary loan. You, pro you provide a preferential rate to pensioners of the military. And of course, the uh, payment of those loans is deducted from their pension. So the pension becomes a much more dynamic part of their overall financial um, planning as, as veterans. Now, the issue of what sort of pension and so forth, that, that's, not, that's, not, that's not part of our responsibility. Although I'm aware, I should put it, that it's under a serious discussion right now so that uh, it doesn't, in a sense, find itself in an awkward position down the road. By having, as, as by having too much pension to, to pay and, and no funds to back it up. Right, that it nearly fell apart in previous years. Out of the bank, you mean? Yes. Yes. So how are you trying to avoid getting into a situation like that? Well, I did change the entire board. Hmm? Uh, some people have the idea and continue to have the idea that the Veterans Bank is uh, run by non-bankers. Uh, and aging veterans, and to some extent that was tr that was true at the start, and some continue to have the impression that it is a government bank. Both are are, are not correct. At least the first one is not correct anymore, and the second has been has always been a misperception. It has always been a private commercial bank. So. In order to fix the first part, I had to um, ask the board at that time uh, to, to uh, exit. 
But then they willingly did, since many of them were, what, in the 80s. And I started approaching people who I thought were respectable and knew what they what, what banking was and what audit was and so forth and so on. So if you look at my board or the board of the Veterans Bank, it's probably the only bank right now that has three ex-bank CEOs in it. Former chairman CEO of DBP, there are two of them because Pepo Nunez is also one. Former president of RCBC, you know, is also there. Um, and I brought in um, a guru of governance, former Secretary of Labor, Nieves Confessor, and a guru of audit, the, the, the recently retired at that time, chairperson of uh, Pricewaterhouse in the person of Judith Lopez. And I brought in somebody who was uh, recognized as a guru of credit. This is Bob Ziap. So I keep telling people, if you look at this board and compare it with any other board, it should compare at least on par, if not uh, superior. Then you start looking at the senior officers and then see who's doing well, who's not, and replace those who are, who are not. And then, of course, there are a lot of governance issues that have to be handled. So we have to write manuals of governance, etc. All these things are, of course, in coordination with the regulatory requirements of the BSP. So we look at, at BSP as a partner in trying to get this bank properly on the right governance track and being able to adequately comply with uh, regular regulatory provisions. Now, as I said, the next thing is to bring the equity of the bank to a level that conforms with regulatory provisions for private commercial banks. And part of the strategy is to broaden the base of its constituency. And, uh, and the charter even includes the possibility of inviting private sector as uh, equity holders. But of course, the priority is given to veterans. Well, you're clearly in touch with what's going on, not only in the banking industry, but internationally. You've been traveling. It's been difficult to book you yes, on the show. Partly because I belong to uh, some significant international organizations, uh, like the Trilateral Commission. And uh, I was on the international board of the Global Reporting Initiative, which is supposed to be the main guru for uh, sustainability. So I keep myself abreast of what's going on geopolitically, worldwide, and so forth. Keeps me, uh, keeps my mind limber. That's why sometimes some people ask me, haven't you retired? And, <laughs> and I tell them, I wouldn't want to retire because I'm afraid that if I retire, my brain will stop working properly and I'll move into Alzheimer's and I, that's something I wouldn't <laughs> want to happen. How would you define or describe the kind of recovery post-pandemic that we're seeing in the Philippines vis-a-vis -vis the ASEAN? It is pretty good. Uh, as you, as you uh, probably know, last year, at the end of last year, economic growth was at 7%. That's because the pent-up demand that was there um, that, that couldn't release itself due to the restrictions, lockdowns and so forth and so on, were released. You remember that uh, transport was hardly moving, people couldn't go to work, theaters, etc. they were all closed, and now it was all released. So um, we, we were able to grow by 7% uh, as of the end of last year. 
And so the first quarter of this year, we were still chugging along at about 6%, slightly higher. But then you know that uh, the pent-up demand can only go so far. And unfortunately, along comes another major problem, which happens to be the United States going into serious inflation, Europe going into war and possible recession in countries like Germany. And all these, of course, have, uh, have uh, brought external factors to a very challenging state. So um, we are trying to maneuver ourselves within that new troubling uh, global economic situation. But so far, we have done fairly well, so that even though most believe that uh, economic growth for this year will not be 7%, it might be a little lower than 6%, it's a pretty good growth considering all the challenges that uh, we're facing. Is it global challenges that you think might slow the Philippine economy? Because if you talk to the local economists, they, they're finding that uh, spending's been tepid, government spending's been tepid, and inflation, while slowing, is still relatively high, along with borrowing costs. Uh, inflation was externally induced, okay? We, we had an inflation rate of, what, 3% until inflation went through the roof in the Western economies to the point where the Federal Reserve of the United States started increasing its interest rates in order to put the brakes on inflation and strengthen the dollar with, with relation to other currencies. So dollars were being siphoned out of all other countries going to the U.S. and therefore the demand and supply between dollars and other currencies uh, was out of was was balanced a different way. We had to react because if we don't react, then we also get hit by externally induced inflation, and therefore the BSP had to also raise interest rates. But fortunately, they didn't panic by raising it too much, and they were just keeping it within a percentage point, let's say, of what the Fed was doing, with the hope that the U.S. will ultimately recover instead of having to keep having inflation rise and uh, get our own inflation and the price uh, uh, under control. So what's the result? As of the end of last year, everybody was in a panic, if you remember, speculating that it would be no less than 60 pesos to a dollar. It didn't happen. In fact, it went down to 55 even 54, right now it's still hovering in that vicinity, which means that at least from the point of view of monetary policy, the BSP was able to call the right shots at the right time. In terms of uh, fiscal policy, uh, the debt level of the country had to increase. I mean, it almost had no choice during the pandemic period because you had to borrow money to bring in the vaccines and support people and institutions that were shut down. That was a period that, that sometimes I said, you know, what happened during the pandemic was instead of the law of supply and demand, you had supply and demand by law because mm -hmm. supply was controlled by law, demand was controlled by law and so forth and so on, which is of course not the way an economy is supposed to prosper. But um, the offshoot of that, once the, once the economy started opening and the, and the um, 
you might say the negative effects of uh, the geopolitical situation were food shortages, high uh, fuel prices. And these two, if you just look at those two themselves, would of course have its uh, cascading effect on all sorts of other prices. So if you recall, during the first uh, months of the administration, there was all this brouhaha about importing sugar. And all. But the real point really was that if you're facing a shortage and you don't have the supply on hand, it's not an opportune time to uh, be protectionist. It may be an opportune time to at least have a temporary period of easing quantitative restrictions on certain products in order that demand and supply would meet at the point where the price is affordable to the lower income groups in particular. Let me pick up on fiscal policy, uh, specific to that, the fiscal consolidation plan, because economists are still looking for that one year on in the current presidency. What would you recommend would be a good fiscal consolidation plan, given that and I'm just recalling during your term as Secretary of Finance, uh, you did turn around the government's fiscal position uh, from large deficits into surpluses. And we enjoyed uh, consecutive years of, of large surpluses. <clears throat> well, uh, I don't think you can get to a surplus quickly enough right now. But the fiscal consolidation is recovering from a situation which was about as dire as it can get so that uh, borrowing levels as a percent, in other words, uh, loans as a percent to GDP went from 30% before COVID, which was remarkable, which meant that the fiscal consolidation effort of the previous administration was pretty good. You know? But then they had to go in a borrowing of necessity uh, modality because of the pandemic. And it reached, I think, beyond 60%. And uh, some benchmarks, of course, these benchmarks are, don't, don't take into account a pandemic, would say that for a middle-income country like the Philippines, it would be healthiest if it were around you know, between 50 and 60, not beyond. All right. For those that are kind of waiting, as you said, for fiscal consolidation to take place, I think it's taking place because the debt to GDP ratio is now at 60%. It's gone down from 65 and the various steps that the government are taking are aimed at bringing it down to 50 or 55% by the time you get to 2028. Now, that requires that they are adept, or should I say deft, at making sure that even if they borrow, they favor longer term, lower interest rates type of borrowing so that the debt service burden is not excessive. And uh, of course, secondly, that they have to have a good tax efficiency ratio, if not introduction of even more uh, improvements to the tax system. Now, you recall that during our time in office, we did something similar with the CTRP. Comprehensive had, tax it reform. It had good results. Plan. Fortunately for us, we didn't have a pandemic. Unfortunately for us, we had the Asian financial crisis. But if we didn't have 
a good fiscal consolidation plan that would have hit us even harder. Now, during the previous administration, they had two things they called train, and the other was create. And those two, of course, they have a lag time before their impact is fully felt, and that lag time stretches into the present administration. So what's what's incumbent upon the present uh, administration is to make sure that they take advantage of these fiscal consolidation measures by continuing to enhance collection efficiency. Would you recommend new and um, existing tax measures then for well, there are a fiscal some consolidation plan? There are already some. So there's no but need right for now, new I taxes. I would lean towards uh, uh, more uh, efficient use of what's already in place. Not new taxes? No, because well, maybe there might be a few. But I think the new taxes that I've read, and I just don't have all of them in, in the back of my mind, are not as impactful. So you, you might introduce a new tax, let's say on what cell phone use, but um, it, it might have a counterbalancing effect on the economy. So you have to be a little cautious. And unlike say, uh, the improvements on the last tax reform, which had to do with the upgrading, so to speak, of sin tax, well, as a matter of principle, you tax things that are detrimental to the society. So that makes sense. So I would say that uh, uh, that would be a good step forward. And the reason why fiscal consolidation is going to be important is because you can't just rely on monetary policy to set things straight. They're experiencing that now in the United States. <laughs> they had this big debate about getting into a debt crisis, right? Okay. Partly because they are, the Federal Reserve keeps increasing interest rates. Ten but straight the, rate but, hikes in 14 months. Yeah, but the, <laughs> but the fiscal side just keeps escalating its spending as well. So these things um, have to be, have to be uh, balanced. Talk to us about the CTRP because it's come at an interesting time and that was between 1992 to 1997. Mm -hmm. I was just a financial reporter then, but I did cover you in the finance department. You actually um, instituted that plan at a time interest rates and borrowing costs were relatively higher. Mm -hmm. And that was just before the Asian financial crisis, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. but we did have the Gulf War and that elevated crude oil prices. And we also had uh, a problem with, with, like I said, inflation. So given that scenario, what was the sort of decision-making process that you had with the then President Fidel Ramos's mm -hmm. administration in convincing him this was the time to introduce mm -hmm. a fiscal reform measure as big as the CTRP? Right. Well, as you know, when, when we came into office, the coffers were dry uh, for all sorts of reasons. That, everybody, I think, realizes. But even if they were less dry, we had a tendency, at least in my observation at the time, to try to fill financing gaps by more and more and more taxes. To the point, therefore, that our tax structure had become unwieldy, complicated, and difficult to operationalize and comply with. 
So the idea really behind the CTRP had less to do with lowering taxes. It wasn't just, oh, give you guys all a break and lower the taxes. No, that wasn't it. It was making a sensible tax structure while at the same time going for an expansion of the tax base as the way to get the financial uh, situation to go up. Now, what do I mean by rationalizing? I'll give you an example. If I were just uh, looking at the tax regime of the time that had to do with, say, alcoholic products, uh, it was shocking. You'd have one type of tax for wine, another tax for alcoholic, another tax type of tax if, if you bought it in Manila, another tax if you bought it outside Manila, another tax if you bought it from a hotel, another tax if you bought on and on and on. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is so, this is so crazy. And then you, you had a uh, tax uh, structure where the bracketing was so long that there was a possibility that you could go from this bracket to that and actually have less income you know, because, because of the anomaly of the percentages of tax that, that would be. So not to mention, of course, that it was so complicated that people were disincentivized to fill up all those forms. This was the same for BIR as it was with customs. You know, I actually, on every foreign trip I'd take, I'd collect forms mm -hmm. because they, they let you fill it on an airplane. And I noticed immediately that we had the most excruciatingly complex one. And so I said, simplify. And so part of CTRP had to do with expanding the base, simplifying the rates, and rationalizing the uh, process, as well as, of course, streamlining uh, and cutting down on corruption. So the program was supplemented by something that I coined called um, processes and premises. Okay, premises meant the uh, observation I had that if you're going to pay something or, or interact with payment agencies in many countries, you go to a, a barrier and you fill up a form, give it there and sit down and wait to be called. In our system, we go desk to desk to desk and every desk is an instance of corruption. So I had to, I had the architectural design changed in quite a number of offices, and believe it or not, uh, that, that kind of worked. And it's better than thinking that you're going to go in there as the new secretary of finance like Michael the Archangel and put all the devils to jail. <laughs> well, we don't have that many jails <laughs> to put all the <laughs> devils. So it's better to uh, narrow the areas of discretion that lead to graft and corruption. By premises processes meant simplify those forms. You don't want something that's passed from desk to desk to desk. Initial, 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 initial. Crazy. Well, and just staying with fiscal, the, the fiscal challenges that we face today, we have the Maharlika Investment Fund, and that just got approved by both houses of Congress on May thirty first. Still have to um, iron out the implementing rules. But I do know that you said, well ahead of its approval, that the uh, Philippine Sovereign Wealth Fund, which it is, is, quote, probably a good idea whose time 
has not yet come. <laughs> now you're laughing, but what now? <laughs> now that it's been approved by both that houses of say, Congress. What should I say? A diplomatic way of putting it. I mean, another diplomatic way of putting it is if, if uh, smarter financial guys than me, like the Secretary of Finance and the BSP governor, say it's fine, it must be fine, right? Okay, so the first fine thing is that at least in their search for where they're going to get the funds for a Maharlika fund, they listened to the clamor of not touching GSIS and SSS, the pension funds. Why put at risk something that is relied upon by your citizenry? So that's a plus. The second is uh, that it seems that some of the amendments that were passed by the Senate put certain, you might say, parameters of how much you can get out of, uh, out of GFIs, particularly DBP and land bank. I don't remember some debt equity ratio thing there. And then there are all kinds of other restrictions that had to do, I believe, with getting reserves from the BSP, which again had a parameter. You can't just rate a thing for, for its dividends. Okay. And finally, if I remember right, the build up, because it's not an immediate thing, from 125 million, I think, to uh, 500 million is flexible meaning it need not be 500 million if you can't reach it by X amount, but you, you, tr <coughs> you try and you get to the starting gate with 125 million, billion and, and, and see what happens. These are the things I remember. So from the point of view of having a fund whose sources are more protected, even though my original position on this together with many, many others is you only go into this if you have excess funds. These are not exactly excess funds, but at least they're dividends. So you can say you can either park them in a low interest rate or you can go with a higher risk thing and see what happens. Okay. And then you've got all those protections that I, that, that I said. The problem uh, I see is, are, is twofold really. Uh, the first one is if it is as uh, restricted as that, what exactly will it generate that is going to be a major contributor? I, I remember one senator saying, oh, I passed it because it will finance infrastructure. Oh, yeah? 125 million. Let's say you're lucky and you can get 10% rate of return. So you get 12 billion. Geez, the MRT7 is, is, is a, I mean, the subway is, is already more than that. So that's the first thing. What, what is this thing going to generate? The second is because it is an investment fund, therefore you ought to have people who to decide what to invest in. And right now, though the world economy is not in the best shape for hunting down uh, good rates of return on investment. That's why I said, good idea whose time has not yet come. I was kind of suggesting, why don't you discuss it some more, refine it some more, and jump into the fray once things have settled down. Then you can have a better idea of uh, what rate of return you can, you can get for what. And finally, 
there are all kinds of investments. There's investment in financial paper, there's investment in real estate, there's investment in basketball teams, uh, and on and on and on. If you have a fund like this, then you have to have it managed by people that know what they're doing. A Philippine Warren Buffett, for example. But if you're going to get someone like that, you don't pay them a pittance. And then the, the way the organization is structured, it's got committees and advisors and da-da-da-da. And therefore, it seems immediately to have a high uh, exp um, expense on, on the salary level. If that expense has to be uh, funded by the returns on investment of the fund, then there, there is a built-in temptation to go for higher risk and higher returns. And uh, you just pray that the people that are going to do this are clever enough. In, in, in short, to, to, to make a long story short, it, it, now that it's passed, it's kind of water under the bridge. It's passed in a better way than it, it was originally conceived. But now the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So the president has to put some clever people who know how to invest. And secondly, that there's not this built-in temptation to go for higher risk just to be able to pay for the thing. So what should the clever people invest in and make the most out of what we already have as the Monica well, investment fund? There are many ways to invest in uh, infrastructure, okay? For example, uh, you can invest as a co-owner of infrastructure, or you can invest in bonds that are put out by an infrastructure entity. It doesn't even have to be infrastructure. I would say that uh, even if you might think that there are higher returns in investing directly in infrastructure, like let's say the transmission line, there was this big to-do about how much the, they're, they're getting compensated, right? which means there's, there's a super normal rate of return. The problem with that is two, is two things. The government ends up involving itself in the rate structure because it's now code. Now, will it try to bring rates down? That's almost contrary to trying to get a high rate of return. Okay, So maybe it's, it's better for them to look at... Uh, a more, we say, detached set of investment opportunities. Like you can either invest by buying gold or you can invest in, in, in gold paper. And maybe that's better than this. How would you assess the current administration's first year in office? Actually, not bad. Uh, considering that uh, there were all kinds of negative things, of course, in our history, about uh, the Marcos name, uh, Marcos Jr. has done fairly well. I'd say the first good thing he did was to appoint pretty good people in his economic team. You, you have um, Ben Jokno in finance, who is, as I said earlier, uh, being able to continue with the fiscal consolidation, therefore keeping our GDP to debt ratio manageable, among other things. Uh, you got uh, Balisakan, uh, he's an accomplished economist and in no time at all came up with a eight-point NEDA strategic program. You got Philip Medaglia, everybody was saying the exchange here is going to be 60 to 1. He 
managed to keep it down. I, I can go on and on, but uh, look, uh, recently the president appointed a uh, excellent defense secretary. We've had experience with him before, so it's not as if he's coming out of nowhere. We, we know his track record, we know his capability, and an excellent health secretary. So that's good. Then they managed to push forward our membership with RCEP. And that puts us in a trading block. Of course, it doesn't include the United States, but you know the way geopolitics is developing. These trading blocks are encompassing the larger percentage of the population of the world, and therefore the larger market for trades of goods and services. That's in place. Energy. He put a guy, uh, Lotilia, and Lotilia immediately reversed this, um, you might say, uh, fear in our minds about having foreign investors in uh, renewable energy. And so he opened it up completely. So you can expect now a, a, a large investment in uh, renewable energy to supplement the basic um, generating energy that we need. But beyond that, he's, he seems to be analytical in his approach towards balancing environmental concerns and sensible transitional energy policy. What do I mean by transitional? Well, some people get so enamored by sun screen, what, what do you call it? Solar, solar panels, and sunscreens, yeah. <laughs> solar panels and wind. Okay, fine. No, that's fine. But they're not a substitute for a base load. All right. So like it or not, somewhere down the horizon, you have to think what, what, what's going to be your best bet on base load. Probably nuclear. And uh, Popo Lutida was brave enough to say, yeah, I'm going to look at nuclear. But between now and then, you, you still have to take a look at what other energy steps you have to take, including perhaps, although he didn't say it, I'm the one that can, oh, why don't you think about this? Importing, in some manner, cheaper oil from the likes of Russia. After all, India's doing it. The United States is getting finished products from India. Which have, which have a mix of Russian oil in it, because you cannot tell anymore once, it's, uh, once it goes through a refinery, which, which, which percentage is Russian, which is not, and so forth. So. But that does have its geopolitical implications. But we have to observe the, the proper transition and not get swept by a, a fashion of just putting uh, renewable energy left and right as the main thing to do. You didn't mention agriculture, and no, it's, it's one of his uh, key pillars when, when he no, because I was delivered going to his all the good stuff last year. <laughs> so it wasn't the good stuff. No, it wasn't. Unfortunately, it could have been worse. But uh, if, he, if, if I were to give, uh, you might say, uh, unsolicited advice, it may be a good time to start hunting down a pretty good agriculture secretary. Not that, not that the president himself is clueless. But if you're president, you've got so many things to do. And this particular sector is one of the anchor sectors of our economy because of the agricultural potential that we have, which is several times more than a country like Japan. 
And of course, even the, even the issue of, uh, of agriculture for our own domestic purposes becomes important. Not that we're going to aim to not import anything anymore, but that we should at least aim for better productivity per hectare and a better identification of our comparative advantage in what crops or, or livestock or fisheries would be most beneficial for our positioning as a food source for the rest of this region, if not, if not beyond. Now, I'm happy, though, that he managed to push through this uh, agricultural bill that condones uh, massive debt of farmers, I think it's hundreds of millions, I don't remember it, but it's massive. And what that will do is allow the farmers now to be, to be released from this debt burden and be able not to approach land bank and so forth, to, to try to see forms of leasing, consolidation, and so forth. Uh, it's not yet a reform, a total reform of our uh, land reform law, but it's a step in the right direction towards having uh, economies of scale in agriculture, which is uh, what, you, what you'd say a sine qua non for modernizing agriculture and making it jump from that level of, you might say, basic agriculture to agroindustry. As, as long as you're as, as long as you're romanticizing uh, carabaos and uh, one and a half hectare pieces of plots, uh, not going to work. And um, unfortunately, too many people try to put it in the heads of farmers that uh, uh, that, that this is for their own protection and good. When they will actually prosper a lot more if uh, they had economies of scale. Just as a final question, and as we're watched by viewers and, and netizens who probably want to go your way and, and challenge oneself, because you challenged yourself and took on different government roles rather than pick up that big paycheck that you could have had after all the educational attainment that you've had overseas. When you came back here, you decided to serve government. And you did so over the last Five decades, is it? Since 1971, <laughs> 72. I'm revealing your age, mm -hmm. just being polite. <laughs> but what <laughs> advice would you give? Well, my, my advice is think in terms, especially when you're younger, of uh, a challenge uh, rather than a monetary benefit immediately. You know, the first job I had in government was to be uh, one of a team of three to implement the then-fledgling rural electrification of the Phil uh, program of the Philippines. My classmates were aghast. They were all in the big corporations, you know. And here I was in government with a salary lower than my father's driver. And in what rural? Rural? Are you nuts? But, but you know, I learned the Philippines firsthand by going into all those little rural communities and understanding what, what, what makes the economy tick or not, number one. Number two, put it into your mind that life has to have meaning, okay? And at least for me, uh, the service to others gives, it, gives your life meaning whether that's your own immediate family, 
or your friends or the society at large. You're, you're not looking inward all the time thinking of what, what will I do or to uh, get richer and so forth and so on. And you're still at a single-digit handicap, I presume? Not really. <laughs> Not really. Age does have its way of uh, bringing you to certain realities, but I do maintain a uh, physical fitness regime on my own, um, just to make sure that uh, I, I don't earn all my income for the purpose of passing it on to a hospital. It's like you. It's like you're you're working for you're working for a hospital in effect or, or a doctor, if if you don't watch your health. So, believe it or not, during the entire pandemic period, which what three years, I didn't even catch the common cold, and up to now I haven't gotten sipon. Oh my goodness, See? you've been very healthy. Yeah, so far so good. Knock on wood and all that. Well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank Appreciate you very it. much. I Thank you for inviting so me. Much. Bobby De Ocampo here with Thought Leaders. We'll catch us again next Tuesday at 9.30 p.m. Manila time on One News. And you can also check out the long conversation on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. I'm Kathy Yang, and this is Thought Leaders.